This episode of the Proceedings Podcast is brought to you by the members of the U.S. Naval Institute. Our members write, debate, and discuss key issues that ultimately strengthen the Navy, Marine Corps, and Coast Guard. Benefits include a subscription to our award-winning Proceedings Magazine, discounts to over a 1,000 titles from books published by the Naval Institute Press, and graphic novels from Dead Reckoning, a discounted subscription to Naval History Magazine, special invitations to conferences and events, and access to 146 years of archival information such as historic photos, oral histories, and so much more. For more, go to usni.org join. Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me for this episode is my normal co-host. It's been a few episodes. We've been doing a lot of history episodes. Lots of history. With Eric, yeah. Yeah. Is Bill Hamlet, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine. Hello, Bill. Hey, Ward. So we're going to go back in uh, in this episode of the podcast to a July author. Joining us today from the Naval Postgraduate School out in Monterey, California, is Dr. Britta Hale. She is the winner of this year's Naval Postgraduate School essay contest. Her essay is titled Escaping the Innovation Bunker. It appears on pages 52 and 53 of the July issue of Proceedings. Uh, welcome to the podcast, uh, Dr. Hale. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to join the two of you today. So uh, just a little bit in your background, um, you're a cryptographer, assistant professor of computer science at the Naval Postgraduate School. Uh, you won the contest, as I mentioned. And I want to start by reading uh, some a little bit of the beginning of your article. So the Department of Defense is facing several unprecedented technological advances, artificial intelligence applications, 5G technology already transforming possibilities, and quantum computing is on the horizon. Each of these brings with it advantages as well as both first and second order risks. Harnessing innovation has been under the microscope with special attention on innovation silos. However, analyses often focus solely internally or gaze solely outward. And achieving success in this area is an organizational concern, but the responsibility and potential for it rest across the shoulders of every member. Because the human mind, as powerful as it is, is not singularly equipped to understand and address all these developments and associated concerns simultaneously, the key to success lies in strategic interpersonal collaboration. And then you go on to, uh, to write about a, your case study is the development of the military tank beginning in the 1880s. So tell us that story. So this story starts with uh, a man named Holt, who is a farmer in the San Joaquin River Valley in California. And they're dealing with basically tractors getting stuck in the marshland mud in that area. And they're looking at ways to improve this. They get the idea of the track tractor. Now, actually, this idea predates him by about 100 years. So the story of innovation is very long lasting. But we pick up with Holt and he recognizes military applications to this tractor. So he contacts the U.S. War Department in 1913 and again in 1914 and offers a demonstration of this tractor for military uses. And he actually offers to pay for shipment of it to any testing ground of their choice. Now, those requests go ignored. So this isn't a great start to innovation, but it's very typical to what many have experienced. And 
So what, what happens after this? Well, a miner who's actually looking for mining equipment happens to see one of the Holt tractors at a show in Antwerp. And he contacts a friend, uh, a man na- by the name of Swinton, a British colonel. And he says, you've got to see this. Well, Swinton immediately recognizes the applications. He's been on the field and he knows what they're dealing with. And he starts lobbying uh, the British War Department around this idea, and he gets pushed back. He gets pushed back of being called as a flight of fancy, uh, children's toys, and a waste of valuable time. So everything, again, that no innovator wants to hear, and particularly not encouraging of one's career as a British colonel. But he keeps trying, he keeps having conversations with people, and eventually he hears of something that's called the Land Ship Committee. And he arranges a meeting with the secretary of that committee, uh, a man by the name of Stern. Now, a little background on Stern, he's actually a banker, and he wasn't originally even able to join the Naval Reserves because of injuries. But eventually he gets in. And he has lots of ideas. This guy loves talking about new ideas and potential. And at a dinner party that he happened to be at, he was able to have a conversation with Winston Churchill about one of these ideas. And that idea was for a tricycle, a giant tricycle with 40-foot wheels. And he even designed turrets at the top and guns uh, to be used as this war machine. And it is a very fantastical idea. The reception from the, his military colleagues was about as good at that time as you would imagine it to be today for the exact same idea. There is a huge amount of pushback, to say the least. But uh, Churchill recognizes a uh, potential in this, not necessarily in the idea itself, but in that motivation. And so he sets up uh, the, what's called the Landship Committee and puts Stern on that. And in this committee... Uh, Stern meets various people. There's a uh, director of naval construction, a man by the name of Court, who had been working on actual submarine design. And he also is someone who you might say doesn't have a great track record of adoption of technology. Seven of his designs sank. Maybe that's why they put him on the land ship committee. <laughs> but they, it's, 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 it's not a great track start. <laughs> But they're all working together. And so Swinton, going back to the colonel, he hears of this group and he arranges to meet with Stern. And when they meet up, he asks them, what is it that you're doing? He says, you're, you've got uh, this director of naval construction building land vehicles for the army who never wanted them and aren't doing anything to help. And he continues to ask him, who are you? Are you a chauffeur? Are you a mechanic? And of course, Stern is a banker. So what we're seeing is this very eclectic mix of individuals from various backgrounds, uh, various interests, but they all have one thing in common. One, they are driving towards a problem, towards solving a problem, and they're very persistent uh, in the discussions around that. So that meeting of Swinton and Stern marked a turning point in the development of the tank. And less than half a year later, Swinton commanded the first tank unit at the Battle of the Somme. 
So, so your example, the tank is, uh, you know, it, it's a hundred or, or more years old in terms of this development. Uh, it's a great story. It's a great historical story. Uh, but what are a couple lessons that still apply to innovation and technology today? It is a very old technology in many ways. But regardless of the technological developments around us, the characteristics of those who are driving those developments really remain the same. These are human characteristics. A determination features strongly, and the good news for the DoD is that we have that in spades in many areas. So the next question really is, what are we being determined about? Where is that determination factoring in? Uh, one of those is psychological determination. These people were very persistent in reaching out about new ideas and talking to uh, those around them, and also, and very critically, adapting their ideas as needed. When Stern pitched his idea to Churchill, it was for a giant tricycle. What we ended up with was a tank. Those two things could not be more different in the realm of land vehicles. And if anyone in that process had dug in their heels and said, no, I've got an idea, I'm going to stick to it, I'll just be determined around this one solution, we would never have gotten to where we are today. But instead, they're very persistent in adapting the idea as needed uh, for the to the end user and the needs around them. The second attribute that shows up is actually sociological in the sense of determination around the, the interactions of the innovators. They face a lot of pushback uh, by basically everyone. There's very few who accepted the idea or, or even the problem statement. And that determination to keep talking, uh, to push forward with, with an idea, despite not having any praise, despite not having any uh, backing, is really quite noticeable, which actually does point to uh, attributes that we look for today among innovators. If you talk about a young seaman or an ensign having an idea, it actually takes a great amount of determination to keep having conversations with people. Uh, that is sociological. It's also physical and the amount of time invested in that effort. And it, it's something worth building up. It's something worth praising because that's really what's going to drive innovation. If we take only an outcome-oriented approach to innovation, we're never going to see the true potential there are many people who have contributed along the line uh, with those conversations to get things moving. And it's not simply those who are standing at the end uh, whose sacrifices should be mentioned and noted. One of the sections of your article is called Trust and Humility. Uh, talk about those factors a little bit. Well, the trust is absolutely essential, of course, to innovation. We need to trust those that we're uh, going to propose ideas to. Uh, but let's actually, I would say, zoom back a little bit on the, on the trust and say, wh whom are we trusting? If we look at us as individuals, as innovators, um, you, Bill, you, Ward, and myself, we are all comprised of various microcultures that have formed who we are. There's units that you've been involved with. There's branches of the military. There's academic groups on my side. Uh, we also have microcultures formed around areas of the country where you grew up, um, maybe what type of food you like eating, whether you're a steak person or a vegetarian. There's microcultures around gender and race. There's numerous microcultures 
that we are at the center of. We are basically at a Venn diagram of all these microcultures and at the intersection of them. Okay, so that, that's our starting point. Now, when we're talking about trust, and if I have a new idea, who am I going to talk to? It's probably someone that I trust. So it's very natural to trust uh, individuals who are within a similar microculture to our own. Uh, this You can see this in military groups, for example, that we build up a strong sense of trust so that you know who's at your back. You might not have met them before, but if they're both having been stationed at Camp Pendleton, for example, there, there's a basis of trust uh, to form with which also means that's a natural starting point for a new idea to talk to those people that you have something in common with. And there's nothing wrong with that. But the problem is, is it doesn't scale. We, if we stay only talking to those in our microcultures, we actually end up in an echo chamber and cyclically are only discussing ideas with those who are most similar to us, which means we're also not adapting to some of those potentially much better ideas outside of those microcultural groups. Sometimes you see this in, for example, if the Marine Corps has an excellent idea, but it has been proposed and discussed and refined within the Marine Corps, and only at the time of maturation is it brought to the Navy, at which time the Navy's interest hasn't been factored in and you get a rejection, or vice versa, the Navy does it and the Marine Corps rejects it. And so you've been building up ideas within a microcultural cosm so then the question is, well, how do we get out of this? Well, first of all, it starts with the humility aspect and noting that simply by how my cultures work, we're probably going to value the competency of those more similar to us and noting that that's not necessarily the truth. It's, it's a perception issue. And once you analyze and say, okay, what parts of my cultures am I part of? Now let's reach outside of that. Let's see all the different backgrounds I can pull from uh, to create a better design. In the story of the tank, we see a very eclectic mix of individuals. We have farmer, miners, uh, soldiers, we have the Navy. Everyone's there. They're all contributing, and therefore you get a better idea out. Uh, actually, Dyncourt is was termed by some of his uh, collaborators at the time as a true father of the tank. He was a naval architect. Hmm. And Swinton is often given credit for it, and he's army. But the reality is, it's a whole team, and they're all contributing. Uh, Matt Ridley actually once said that no one knows how to build a computer mouse. No one knows how to com build a computer mouse. It takes software, there's hardware, there's a supply chain, there's material science going into that. There's ergonomics for user adaptation. No one knows how to build a computer mouse. It requires a team of individuals of various backgrounds. And so if you set up a software development team full of software engineers, it, you kind of miss the point. You need a group of all different backgrounds coming together, which means also consciously trusting those individuals and respecting them from their different sides. In the tank, we actually see a, a very curious aspect of this, that after the Battle of the Somme, about a year after, uh, Swinton traveled to California. He met with Holt, and he publicly thanked him. Now, World War I was still going on. He traveled to California, and he publicly thanked him for his efforts in designing the track tractor and how it informed 
the development of the tank. None of Holt's original designs, none of that original parts or equipment made it into the final tank. But we still valued everyone who contributed along the way. We stand on the shoulders of giants, and that takes humility to recognize. In an unfortunate twist, we actually see a lack of humility on what happened on the central power side of the same story. If you recall early on, I mentioned that uh, Holt offered to send a tank or a track tracker to any testing ground in the U.S., and those offers were ignored. Around the same time, there was a man by the name of Steiner, who was a landowner in Hungary, and saw also the military potential for the tank. And he offered the Austro-Hungarian government a similar testing of the track tractor for this purpose. They took him up on the offer. They saw that they were thrilled, and they immediately wanted to go into production in Austria. Now, at this point, it sounds like World War I should have taken a very different turn because we're, we're ready to, on the central side to adopt this new technology. So what happened? Well, it turned out that the German government was actually strongly opposed to the idea and basically squashed it. And Steiner at the time attributed that to a bitter rivalry between the German and Austro-Hungarian governments. That is a matter of pride, and it actually cuts down the innovation opportunity. And so here we actually see a juxtaposition of the power of humility and seeking advice versus the dangers of assuming you have the right way. So some of the things you're saying as you're talking about the impediments to innovation, in my mind's eye, I'm seeing some of the staff meetings that I did when I worked at the Naval Air Systems Command. And the impediments to innovation were insidious, right? I mean, there's there's budgetary, it's competency-based, it's it's not so much I think your idea is no good, like your tricycle tank is doesn't work for me because this is my microculture. It's it's more like the way that procurement goes in terms of funding, in terms of contract writing, in terms of test and evaluation. So I think in that regard, the threats to innovation are even more onerous because the programmatics it's not somebody that says, I, I think this, you know, I just can't see where this idea would be great. It's people that are sort of tail wagging the dog in terms of the process. So how does that fit into your rubric here? I'll, I'll touch another part of the story that didn't make it into the essay uh, that relates very much to your question. When Stern was starting up this landship committee, he was offered a room in Whitehall for them to work in. It was a stuffy little room at the top of a lot of stairs. And he was a businessman and thought this was absolutely ridiculous and he didn't want to work there, wouldn't help him make progress. So he went out and rented a room from a motoring association for the committee to work in and work on development of the tank. Now, that was not very well received by Whitehall. He sent them a bill. He, as an individual, had gone out and rented this room. It was for a ransom of two pounds a week at the time, which is about $330-some uh, today. And he rented this room of his own accord. He sent them the bill, and they were 
furious with him because that is not how government works. <laughs> and uh, he actually had to pay out of pocket for the first couple of weeks, but then got sorted out. But facilitating that innovation, at some point, we've got to realize where the bounds are of what's a rule or guideline because it's just the way we do it versus what's actually a law that we need to uphold. Yeah, and I think history would show that the mavericks of innovation didn't suffer the rules, maybe even to a criminal degree in some cases. Um, you know, I know that's certainly true on the corporate side. And I think some of the, uh, I'm reminded, you know, we just lost uh, Captain Snort Snodgrass, who's a legendary Tomcat pilot. And he fast-tracked the Lantern system, bypassing the normal procurement and developmental test, mm -hmm. uh, you know, stovepipes and speed bumps to get this thing to the fleet in a year. I mean, it went from idea to fleet introduction in 12 months, which is unheard of. And that made the Tomcat very lethal for the la last 10 years of its existence. And, you know, he just, he just passed away or he was killed in an airplane crash, a pri private air airplane crash. And so the footage of him describing how he fast-tracked that process has been circulating. So that that's top of mind with me right now. And so it wasn't criminal, but he certainly didn't suffer the rules. Had he been other than a fleet operator, had he been a test pilot school grad or a AEDO kind of guy, he probably would not have been even open to bypassing some of the normal T&E and, and OPAVAL pipelines. You know, the frameworks that we set up, they are often very beneficial as a baseline. Like if there's no other route to putting something towards adoption and you want some guidance, that's a nice baseline. But holding to those frameworks as if they are a legal construct or the constitution, that's not what they are. And we can absolutely be looking at uh, moving things along much, much faster. And it takes that collaborative team. It takes having conversations about the idea and pushing on it. And as you mentioned, that's a case where someone was very determined. And because of that determination, and it's, it's that characteristic in the innovator and the conversations that he's willing to have uh, and getting out of the box a little bit, probably well outside of his expertise, considering all the technologies that go into that type of design and bring everyone together that was needed to actually make it a reality uh, is a huge testament to the individual. Yeah, so you're hearing that, Syscom bureaucrats? Dr. Hale has spoken. <laughs> I'm reminded of Rickover, right? And, you know, talk about somebody who uh, oh, yeah. didn't, didn't break That's the law, but broke, broke a lot of glass. He, he broke a lot That's of a glass example. and a lot of brass, too. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> uh, Britta, I've got a question for you. So there's uh, you're a cryptographer, and you mentioned early in the article the advent or the coming of quantum computing. And uh, I, I know because I was an intelligence officer that a lot of work is happening in classified channels. So what do you think about the natural inclination to stovepipe classified programs? And what does that do to innovation and collaboration? And are there ways around that or to break out of that to keep the innovation going, even when you clamp down on something because you want to protect the technology or the information? Oh, it's funny that you mentioned the classified work because that's actually where we get the name from the, of the tank from. Uh, it, it turned out we there was concern about the uses of the tank leaking out. So 
for around the dock and then loading these uh, devices onto the ship. So it was allowed to be known that it was a water tank headed for Egypt. <laughs> and the name stuck. No so kidding. What was it called the water tank to hide its use? And we now call it today. But it's interesting because that's an end state. It's not where it begins. Many of the conversations for innovation, they happen, uh, even in the story of the tank, in very unclassified and unrestricted environments. It's not until it reaches that point of maturation and is ready to go that it gets classified. And it's certainly the case that we need to be concerned about overclassifying material and putting over restrictions on things because we in the DOD are very dependent on industry and academia, and they're dependent on each other for new ideas and for refinement of ideas, really. Now, that said, obviously, that doesn't mean that we declassify everything. The concept of classified material, of, I'll, I'll say, private information, actually spans every single human group you can imagine, whether it's uh, small friend groups, industry, academia, or government. In government, we restrict it based on uh, the classification or the clearance level of an individual. In industry, it's restricted by non-disclosure agreements. In academia, it's restricted by a person's reputation because if they disclose a research idea too early, earlier than their group is ready, uh, no one will ever forget. So there's various ways that we enforce uh, this privacy of information during development. It's very natural and we can say at the start that we can't get rid of it entirely. Now, what do we do then? There's, uh, we've got a secret information of some variety. How do we handle it? And I think it's fair to actually think back. You know, as humans, we all started as kids at some point. So think back to how kids on a playground can would handle a secret. Let's say one child uh, got a new uh, present, the new device is a present. Now, there's two ways of handling a secret. One is to yell out, I've got a secret. I'm not going to tell you what it is and taunt everyone else, or simply refuse to play. And then the other way is, well, not to talk about the secret, but find other things in common and build friendships on the playground in those ways. Now, for us today in, in the DOD, this kind of takes two forms. Uh, it's really about attitude and an approach. If we say, all right, we've got classified information, we, we can't talk to you about things. Obviously, it builds a wall. Uh, simply that approach to the conversation builds a wall. Whereas saying, all right, let's find something in common that we can discuss, because there's very valuable information uh, from industry and academia that we prize, that we need, and we'd love that input to refine ideas. So we want to hear from them. But of course, that means coming to the conversation, not blocking it entirely. And it means offering something. And we actually do have a lot to offer in the DOD. And it's not necessarily the classified material. This doesn't mean we need to you know, declassify things at all. Uh, surprisingly enough, not everyone is interested in the stuff that we classify. Our near-peer adversaries are, but not all of industry and academia are. What they might be interested in are things that we uh, are very open with. For example, uh, if a young seaman is complaining about bolt locations or the number of networking cables he has to deal with or the greeniness of a user interface, the captain is probably not going to think that is priceless information. 
but industry or academia might actually value that type of input a lot as they refine the user interface and improve uh, usability of devices. So what we are prizing on the DoD or classified side and what others prize may actually be different, and we can find common ground. And is about being open to the conversation uh, versus blocking it on the outset. Ward already brought up the, uh, the the example of Snort Snodgrass and seeing a need for an operational need for something and uh, de- leading to the development of the lantern uh, on the F-14 and extending the the lethality and the and the usefulness of that aircraft for another ten years. Um, for our listeners and for uh, you know junior officers or petty officers or sergeants out there uh, who aren't involved in you know directly involved in innovation in their jobs in the fleet or the Marine Corps or the Coast Guard who who aren't involved in technology development, how, how can they be part of the, the effort to make the military more lethal in terms of uh, you know, driving technology or driving um, the, you know, requirements that lead to uh, our, our capabilities being uh, more leading edge? Well, they are absolutely everything. I'll, I'll start with that. They are everything. Uh, the every individual uh, who wants to be an innovator and who is has the determination to uh, can be if we look at the story of the tank there's very simple examples of this i mentioned a mining engineer who saw the the track tractor on a demonstration and wrote a letter he doesn't really appear his name is marriott he doesn't really appear anywhere else in the story he wrote a letter but that was such an instrumental piece of connecting someone that he thought might be interested in an idea with something that he saw someone else designed. Uh, now, he w- didn't design the tractor himself. He didn't design the tank. He w- wasn't out on the battlefield seeing the use cases there. But he connected uh, points together. Innovation is really a coalition of the willing. Uh, everyone can be involved. So if there is a young seaman, for example, or a lieutenant somewhere, and they say, I've got an idea, See who you can talk to. Who can you contact today? It might be industry. It might be government. It might be academia. Who can you talk to about that idea? Or you see something that might be useful. Who can you connect that idea to? Uh, There are many people in these stories, and the tank is just one story that could be pulled. There are so many. And the people involved, everyone along the stages to development, they're all innovators. You don't have to be the engineer or the person diagramming a design. Uh, You can be. That's certainly one way. But the question I would put to people today is, whom have you not talked to about this idea? Our guest has been Dr. Britta Hill, joining us from the Naval Postgraduate School. She's the winner of the 2021 Naval Postgraduate School Essay Contest. Her essay was called is called Escaping the Innovation Bunker. It appears in the July issue of Proceedings, pages 52 and 53. Dr. Hill, thank you for being on the show, and thank you for uh, for writing this amazing article that that does uh, lay out so many great lessons from the development of one thing in military history. In this case, the tank, but the the lessons and the process in the the human interactions are, are I think, so applicable now and, and even into the future. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure to join everyone. All right, that wraps up another episode of the Proceedings Podcast. We'll be back again next week. Until then, remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. <laughs>